Morning, family. I was a bit worried the place might be empty with a sort of kind of long weekend. But hey, it's good to be here, isn't it? Much better than Schlanger. Sunday the 31st of May, that's the Sunday before last, I came along to the evening service, so I had the house to myself in the morning. Pat was here, dog was sleeping, and I just spent time with the Lord. And so I asked him the question that I ask on occasions like this. I said, Lord, I'm preaching in two weeks' time. What do you want your people to know? What do you want your people to hear? Now this might sound a bit strange for some of you, but it's quite normal for me. Uh, Instantly, I perceived The words clearly in my heart and in my mind. Read the last words of the prophet Ezekiel and preach that to the people. So, obviously, immediately turn to Ezekiel 48, verse 35, the very end of the book of Ezekiel. Now, to give you some background first, the last few chapters of the book of Ezekiel is also all about this mystical temple that he saw in vision. And the Holy Spirit gave him incredible detail about the temple, how big it was, what should be in it, who should uh, the ministers be, the priests, and how they should operate, and, and, and things of that nature. And right at the end of it, of these words, the Lord said to Ezekiel, now this is what you must call it. And the name of the city, because this was the vision of the temple and the whole city, the name of the city from that time on will be Jehovah Shammah. Jehovah Shammah, which means... The Lord is there. Hebrew is a flexible language. So the word shamar can mean there or here. So if the people are outside of this temple compound, they would say, the Lord is there. But if they were inside it, they would say, the Lord is here. Jehovah shamar, the Lord is here. The Lord is there. Sadly, that temple was never built in Israel during Old Testament times, nor during the time of Jesus. It was never built on earth. And I say sadly, because the key feature of this temple was the glorious presence of God. Ezekiel starts off his prophecies by saying, Behold, I saw the glory lift off the temple and leave it. For the people of Israel had fallen into iniquity and sin. Now in this vision of a temple, he says, I saw the glory of God coming back to his temple and inhabiting his temple. So I say it's a sadness that this was never built anywhere in human history. But I ask this question. If such a place did exist on earth today, would you not want to find it? And would you not want to be there? Let me give you a little detail so you can better answer the question. Ezekiel 43 verse 4. These are the key features. And the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east and filled the temple. Verse 7. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, This is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. Then it goes on and describes that this great city, this great temple city, had four walls surrounding it. It was four by four. And in each wall were three gates, making 12 gates in total. And on the names of the gates was emblazoned, engraved, a name of each of the tribes of Israel. So we know from this that the this, this city, this temple city, was supposed to figure the presence of God in the midst of his people. And it was a pretty big place. The dimensions given are in, are in cubits, but if you translate it into kilometers, it was two kilometers square. Each wall was two kilometers. So that's pretty big. 
So if you think of an area, two by two by two by two, it was probably big enough to have housed the people of God at that time, the Israelites that were living in the land at that time. And then a surprising and wonderful feature of the city. In chapter 47, it describes a river flowing from the very base of the throne of God and flowing out of this temple compound and down through the wadis and down through the Arabah, the dry places, down to the Dead Sea. Most of us are quite familiar with this river because it comes up a number of times, often in almost frivolous contexts. I mean, I've heard so many times, you know, there's this river of the Holy Spirit, let's all just jump in and wade around and splash, etc. And it was never intended like that. The intention is clear. This river flows from the throne of God into the dead place. If you, those of you who have been to the Dead Sea know it's dead. It always has been in recorded history. It's so full of salt and chemicals that you can float on top of it, not in it. Nothing can live there. Nothing can grow there. But the prophet saw in vision that where this river entered the Dead Sea, the Dead Sea came alive. And suddenly it became swarming with fish. And animals came down to drink. And there was vegetation around it. And the fishermen arrived and they were putting their nets out on the banks. It became a place of life. Because the river of life from the throne of God was entering it. And then it gives one more detail. He said, and I saw on either side of this river trees bearing fruit for nourishment. And the leaves of these trees were for the healing of the nations. What a place. A place of the presence of God in all his glory. Impacting a dead world impacting aridness and dryness and deadness with living water. What a place. So I ask again, with that background, if such a place actually were to exist on this earth now, would you not want to find it? Would you not want to go there and be in it? Now, interestingly, this same temple at Ezekiel so appears again in Scripture, you know, it appears at the very end of the Bible, in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. We see the same picture. It's pictured here as a city of gold. It's called the New Jerusalem descending out of heaven and coming down. Listen to some of the details that Revelation gives, and you can see it's the same thing. Revelation 21 verse 2. I saw the holy city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. Verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. See? It's the same thing. Verse 11. It shone with the glory of God. It was the place of his presence. And then verse 12 describes 12 gates. And guess what's inscribed on those 12 gates? The 12 tribes of Israel. It's the same thing. But now Revelation goes one step further. It says in addition to 12 gates, it has 12 foundations. And on each of the 12 foundations is inscribed the names of the apostles of the Lamb. The New Testament church. The people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament are symbolized and brought together in this incredible, wonderful, heavenly vision. And this is borne out by its incredible size. The New Jerusalem is not two by two by two kilometers. It's 2,200 kilometers square. I mean, wow is the right word. Okay, Bruce, this is especially for you. It's from here to Harare and back. It's almost exactly 2,200 kilometers. It's almost to Cape Town and back. It's about 300 kilometers short of that. This is huge. And that's just one wall. 
And then another wall, the same dimension. It's symbolizing all the people of God in all the ages, for all the eons of time, both Old Testament and New, are brought together in this incredible, wonderful picture. And then verse 22, chapter 22, verse 1, just kind of ties it together and says, And the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowed from the throne of God and from the Lamb. Same, right? And then he says, And I saw that on either bank were the trees of life, bearing fruit for nourishment and leaves for the healing of the nations. It's the same picture. The same glorious, wonderful picture. So the question, does this temple of Ezekiel, this temple compound, does this new Jerusalem of Revelation possibly exist today, somewhere, somehow, do you think? If so, where is it? Because I want to be there. I want to be in the place where God's glory is being manifest and where from the very center of which flows living water which heals the very nations, brings life to death and dryness and barrenness. I want to be there. Is it maybe though just a symbolic presentation of heaven? Maybe one day, in the great by and by, we'll see the city of gold, and the streets are lined with gold, and we'll say, oh, okay. Let me just say something, because somebody asked me this question the other day. You know what? Our minds cannot imagine, our vision cannot even comprehend what heaven's going to be like. Symbols are used, like streets of gold. It's far beyond that. The heavenly reality is going to be so much more than we can try and capture in three-dimensional pictures. So much more. Is it then maybe just a foretaste of some kind of temple that's actually going to be built on this earth during some kind of millennial rule of Christ on earth? Yeah, right. 2,200 kilometers square. Hmm. Or is it here on earth? Right now. Is there a place on this earth which is called Jehovah Shammah? The Lord is there. And the answer? Yes. It's here. In Lone Hill. And Somerset West. And Harare. And Cape Town. And in Auckland, New Zealand, for the temple, the place of the presence of God is the church. It is. When the people of God are there, God is manifest in his glory. Oh, that's how it's designed to be. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3.16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you. And by the way, this is within a plural context, not an individualistic statement here. And in Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22, In Him, that is Jesus, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And again, the language is very clear here. The word we is in the plural. It means you all, us. 
And the word temple is in the singular. He's not talking here about each of us being little temples. We live in this highly individualistic society. Yes, of course, when we are born again of the Spirit, God in some miraculous, wonderful way comes to inhabit us. Yes. And there's a scripture which does put it in the singular. And in terms of sin, it says, don't you know that you, your body, is a temple by which God dwells by His Spirit? But in these and other passages, and there are other passages, it's talking about the corporate gathered church. In some unique and wonderful way, when the church gathers together, that is, when spirit-filled, born-again believers, disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, come together with one heart and one mind to worship Him, we become a temple. And God manifests His glory through that. In, in a way that I don't think can be experienced in isolation. It's a whole different dynamic. So this begs the question, doesn't it? How then ought we to be when we come together, like this morning? When we come and we form this temple, how ought we to be? Let me throw out some words, some evocative words. Expectant. I'm going to be with the other children of God this morning. It's not that God is not with me already, but in some marvelous and wonderful way, I am going to experience Him at a dimension and in a dynamic which is beyond that which I can in myself. I'm going to form up and be part of a temple. That's expectant. How about yielded? And Lord, when I come together today with your people, I want you to know that I'm yours. Body, soul, and spirit. I just want to worship you. I want to contribute. I want to be a living stone cemented into place with all the others where together we just vibrate with joy and worship and vitality. Participation is another evocative word. Lord, I want to participate. I don't want to be a spectator. No, I won't be a spectator, Lord. How can I be a spectator when I'm part of it? I'm a stone in this great temple. Yet, there needs to be reverence as well when we come together, for we are meeting in the presence of the glory of God. Reverence does not necessarily mean obsequious hand-washing and bowing our heads and creeping around. Reverence is an acknowledgement of who God is and who we're not. God, I'm your creation. You are God. And I've come here today to give you all the honor and glory that is due to your wonderful name. I love you, Lord. I revere you. I stand trembling in your holy presence. For you are God. But with that comes joy. It's not a sad or salubrious thing, that. It's a great joy. Lord, that you have given me the privilege of coming and being this temple. That is such a wonderful thought. Such a wonderful reality. Minds, bodies, spirits engaged. Living stones come together to worship. Now then. If this applies to everyone who is born of the Spirit of God, who is here gathered, and it does, does it not? It doesn't just apply to the dudes in the front, or at the back, or holding microphones. It applies to all of us. Then you know what? If you are absent, or if I'm absent, there's a hole in the wall of the temple. 
And when I say absent, I don't just mean not physically present. I mean present, but emotionally gone. Oh, um. oh, nice to see you. And, uh, Rory, happy birthday just for yesterday, by the way. That's all good stuff, but it's not why we're here. Then I'm emotionally absent. And then when that happens, there's a U-shaped hole. And it's not a U-shaped hole. It's a U-shaped hole in this glorious temple. None of us are spectators when we come together. We are the event. And Jesus is the central piece. When we come together, we don't come to feed ourselves spiritually. We come to serve each other and to honor the one who sits at the head of the table. And that's Jesus. We, you see, are the church. We are the temple. We have a sign outside our door there which says meeting place. Quite a cool name, the meeting place. Maybe we should replace it with the words Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is here. Now, I caused great confusion to somebody at the 8 o'clock service, so let me just clear that up. It doesn't mean he's not with us when we leave this place. There's nothing magical about bricks and water. But there's something wonderful when the corporate body comes together. There's a different dynamic. We are not saved just to be individual souls. We are saved to become part of something greater than ourselves, which is the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, living stones, together. Charles Spurgeon, a lot of you, especially my generation, will know that name, a great preacher from the past, preached on this very self-same text, Ezekiel 48.35. And he said some words, as always, he was an excellent teacher and preacher, that uh, I think are really good. He said, the presence of God is the best privilege of his church. Think about that. The presence of God is the best privilege. Aren't we not privileged people? that we can come together in the very presence of God. He then went a step further. And instead of talking about how we should be when we gather, he talked about some things of a slightly different level. Let me just read them out to you without too much commentary. He said, some consequences of our privilege is, should be the conservation of true doctrine. If we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, if we are the temple of God, then we should preach, teach, and live true doctrine. Jesus-centered, Bible-based, spirit-led doctrine, not fads and fancies and, and the thoughts and, and schemes of men. True doctrine is a consequence of the fact that we're the temple. There should be the preservation of purity. A text which somebody else read out during our worship time at the 8 o'clock service, which I excluded from this because I just had too much already. It speaks about the Corinthian church and how it was behaving badly. And it was getting involved in idol worship and so on. And Paul writes to them and said, stop this. How can the temple of God be merged with the temple of the devil? Don't you realize that we are called to be pure and holy people? Not little stones that are so gunged up with sin and muck and self-centeredness that we can't even fit into our place in the great construction of this temple. So there's a demand for personal purity as well. Then he said another consequence is constant renewal and vitality. When the temple comes together, it's a place of life. 
not death. And even when the weather's cold, we cannot claim to be frozen chosen. We are alive. Living stones. Continuing power, he said, is another consequence. The power of the Holy Spirit operating in and through us must be the case if we truly are the temple in which he dwells. And the last one was unity and happiness. The temple of God is a place that is united and it's a place that rings with happiness. These are responses. But immediate responses happen when we actually come together. How do we worship? Wholeheartedly? Or as spectators? Do we engage the whole of ourselves in it? You know, my body's not sitting here like some dormant passive beast while my spirit is worshipping. Nor do I leave my mind behind in my car's cubbyhole when I walk through the, the portals of this building. I come body, soul, and spirit to engage all of me in worship. And, it's got, and I'm going to try and say this as unoffensively as I can. If I, if I manage, as I often do, to offend somebody, forgive me in advance. It's got nothing to do with your background or your religious tra- traditions or I'm a conservative man. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with the reality. No matter what my background, no matter what my religious orientation from the past, and no matter how I see myself, how can I come to a place where I truly believe God is present and remain dormant with bodies like little ice cubes? I can't. I can't. My mind and my soul and my body I must love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, and all my strength, my body. We, we bring all of this to our experience of worship. No, it's not a question of everybody must leap up and down and, and throw their arms in there, because that's not where it's at either. It's the real, transparent, yieldedness of our whole selves in worship. But I defy anybody to be able to say, I can't tell you how really excited I am this morning. I'm just bubbling over. Let's get real. Our bodies, our faces will tell the story of what's in our hearts. When we come together, I guess there's one song that we sing above, maybe all others, that expresses what I'm saying. Our hearts should be crying out and singing, Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see Jesus. To reach out and touch Him. And to say that I love Him. In fact, we should even be putting it in the singular. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see you, Jesus. To reach out and touch you. And to say that I love you. Open my ears, Lord. Help me to listen. Open my eyes, Lord. I want to see you, Jesus. Now we come together with that heart. Surely the glory of God will break forth in this place. For the temple has been constituted. One of a thousand. One of a hundred thousand. One of a million across the face of the earth. But a real, vibrant temple of the Holy Spirit. For more than four years now, we have believed as a leadership that God has called us as a church to pray for revival. Now, revival can be defined, amongst other things, as 
the intense and continuous experience of the presence of God. That's one of the definitions of revival. So for over four years, we, uh, there's about 20 of us still, almost every Monday night we come and we pray, Lord, come revive your church. Pour out your spirit upon your church. But of late, maybe, maybe to compensate for the fact that you know, four years have gone by, there's been some talk. And, well, maybe the Lord is just wanting to rather revive us individually. No! That's personal regeneration. That's personal renewal. And yes, that's a great thing. And yes, we should embrace that. But that's not revival. Revival comes to the church. When the Spirit of God comes like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire and blazes through His temple. And from that He touches whole cities and whole nations. It's far beyond a few people being spiritually quickened. Not that that's a bad thing. That's a great thing. But it's not revival. I'm still trusting God to blaze with glory through His church in these days in which we live. When revival, when the glory of God manifests in His church, we, like Moses before us, will go out with our very faces shining with the glory of God. Shining, full of vitality, filled with the Holy Spirit, and we will be poured out like living water coming from the very throne of God itself. And wherever we go, whatever we touch, will bring life in Jesus' name, healing in Jesus' name, spiritual regeneration in Jesus' name, enlightenment in Jesus' name. For how can we meet in the very presence of God and not radiate that to the world? How can we receive from the hand of the very one who brings living water, the Lord Jesus Christ? How can we drink of that and not pour it out into a Dead Sea world around us? We go out in the afterglow of the glory of God, carrying living water for the healing of our nation. What a privilege! What a glorious thing. So, is there a place on this earth where God has placed his feet and set up his throne? Is there a place of his glorious presence? Yes, it's called the church. And if you are born again, disciple of Jesus, you are part of that temple. So I have to close with the hardest question of them all. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Take the scriptures, take the ones I've given you today and others and read them again and say, do I believe this? Because you know what? If I say I believe it, my words and my actions must validate that, not deny it. How can I say, I believe I'm coming to be a living stone in the very temple of God, ho-hum, that, that is impossible. That is a great act of hypocrisy. Then I'm actually saying, I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. If I believe, my lips will confirm. If I believe, 
my actions will validate. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is here. When the world sees Christians coming out of the near presence of God, bearing life-giving spiritual water, whose faces are aglow with the glory of God, the world will say, surely the Lord is there. And there, and there, and real. Jehovah Shammah. Amen.